Fallheim by Michael Guerin, Episode 20, Starting a Business. Earlier I said this is about people who don't realize their goals and how they learn to cope. For me, that goal was my writing ambition. I abandoned it after an incident involving Penguin Books. Here's what happened. Shortly after my return from Peace Corps, I completed the manuscript for my second book, Jihad. I continued to track the war in Afghanistan since I'd left there during the early days of the fighting. My book research led me to believe there was a good chance the U.S. was supplying weapons to the Mujahideen. I also realized that the Afghans could not win the war while the Russians controlled the skies. I'd read about a new weapon system, the Stinger missile, that seemed the ideal weapon to turn the tide. Jihad's storyline follows U.S. agents getting stingers to the Mujahideen. Years later, this scenario turned out to have been true. After I submitted the book a couple of times, I got a letter from an editor at Penguin Books. She said she'd read the sample of Jihad I'd sent and she wanted to read the rest of it. With that letter in hand, I sought out a literary agent. I signed a contract engaging her to handle the negotiations for the rights of my book. Months went by without a word. Finally, the agent contacted me and said that she'd heard back from the editor. I'll read you her note, she said. Dear Michael, didn't like it as much as I hoped I would. Dictated but not signed by editor Penguin Books. And my agent let me know that she didn't handle fiction and didn't see any point in peddling my work. The dual blows shattered me. I put Jihad on the shelf next to my first book, The Commando Road. I decided the time had come to focus on career. I wouldn't stop trying to be a writer. I'd just put that goal on hold. Then I decided that if I could make enough money, I could go back to trying to be a novelist. It took a couple of years, but I ended up landing my dream job. I would be developing software for the Environmental Protection Agency. And there I soon met a man who would become my mentor and very good friend, Dave Newton. One day, in early 1989, Dave told me that he saw an opportunity he'd been waiting for. He said the business environment was right for him to start his own consulting firm. Then he surprised me by offering me a partner role. He didn't ask me to commit. He just invited me to a Saturday meeting to talk it through. When I got there, I found he'd invited a couple of others as well. One, Amy Morosco, had the same level of seniority as Dave, but worked with a competitor. Each of them had also recruited their principal lieutenants. We continued to meet Saturdays for half a year. About the same time, Dave and Amy, both married to others, began sleeping together. It seemed like a very bad way to start a company. Dave then announced that we needed money to get started. Each of us had to ante up $25,000 as the cost of admission. I didn't have that kind of money. And my wife Nancy was totally opposed to the whole idea. Between Nancy's opposition... Dave and Amy's affair, and the need to find a bunch of money, I was ready to throw in the towel. I scheduled a heart-to-heart -heart with Dave. I told him I neither had Nancy's support nor $25,000. I also said that I feared when Dave and Amy's relationship went south, only one of the two would remain with the firm. The real strength of the new company was the two of them. What I didn't say was I had a personal plan called TFI, Total Financial Independence, my path to attaining my cherished writer's life. I was making progress on that goal. I'd built a 50-person systems development team at my current company, and my employer agreed me to give me a cut on all the business I brought in. I had a pretty good shot at TFI without the risk of striking out on my own. During our discussion, Dave told me he'd filed for divorce and settled with his wife. He said he'd left her the bulk of the assets, but he was walking away with a hundred grand. 
He said, that's how much I'm bringing to the firm, every cent I have. I've decided there's no one I'd rather bet on than myself. You might want to give that some thought, too. I thought about it for a moment and said, actually, I completely agree with you. There's no one I'd rather bet on than you, too. When I got home, I asked Nancy to please back me on starting the firm, and she reluctantly agreed. Then I took out a second mortgage, wrote a check for 25000 and joined the firm. I've shut out the details on how Nancy and I worked it out. I know that she had to turn down a dream job in Africa. I know, too, that she found a way to forgive me. She went along with my starting the business with a condition. Only for the next five years, she said. I swear if you don't come with me on my next overseas assignment, I'll divorce you. I promised her I would. I told her I had also let my new partners know the plan. We agreed that Amy should be president, Dave senior vice president, Jim, Tom, and I were vice presidents. We ran into trouble from the very start. Right out of the gate, we leased office space and computer equipment sufficient for 25 or 30 people. We had only a third that many tops. One night, the security company called me to let me know the office alarm was going off. They told me I needed to get back into town to shut it off. When I arrived after midnight, I found the office door was jimmied. Thieves had stolen all our newly leased computers. When the police arrived, they said there was very little chance that we'd ever get them back. That was when it dawned on us that we'd overlooked getting any type of insurance to cover the firm. Now we owed $40,000 to a leasing agency for the stolen computers, and after only two months of operation, it looked like bankruptcy was our only way out. The police dropped by the following day to let us know that we were living under a lucky star. Some good Samaritan in D.C. saw a couple guys hawking personal computers off a trolley in the street. He called them out on it, and they fled the scene. Lucky for you, they left the computers. We ended up getting all but three of the computers back, and we didn't have to close the company down. Six months into operation, June 1990, the first M&G baby was born. My amazing daughter, Kate. We had about 30 employees by then. Many of our old customers had followed us to the new company, and work was flowing in. By outward signs, we were already a success. But my partners and I were at each other's throats. We didn't seem to have the skills necessary to resolve the differences that constantly arose. Some of the issues were trivial, like whether Amy should get her own secretary while the rest of us shared one. Some were difficult, like how many shares of stock each of us was entitled to. No matter what the importance of the issue, the discussions led to squabbling, and the squabbling led each of us to try tearing the others down. In fairness, both Dave and Amy remained above the fray, but they were growing weary of being the only adults in the room. What was clear was that there was some kind of functional imbalance in our group. Well, dysfunctional is probably the better word. We agreed that something had to change, but we couldn't identify what. The problems grew worse and worse over a period of about two years. Then at some point, Amy came into my office and asked if we could have a chat. She said she'd been thinking about our difficulties and it had become clear to her that I was at their root. She fingered my behavior during our weekly board meetings. She said I was unprofessional because, as she put it, you argue until you wear everyone down. You force your point and you won't let up until you've worn us out. Now remember that Amy brought her old favorite, Jim, from her old shop, just as Dave had brought his top producer, Tom. As far as I was concerned, both were bigger problems than I was and they were building their businesses, testing and training and the like, on top of my system's work. Assuming this was only Amy's position, I suggested that we talk this through as a group. That's when she told me that wouldn't be necessary. She said they'd already discussed it, and they've asked me to have this talk. 
It struck me that Dave and Amy had each made a deal to protect their own. I was the odd man out. I was floored and I was scared. Two years in, it looked like I was about to be forced out. I admit I was well aware of the behavior she was talking about. I just didn't think it was all that big a deal. But apparently it was, because it sure felt like I was about to get the boot. I decided to own up to it and let the chips fall where they may. I scheduled time with each of them and promised I'd do my best to change my behavior. Then I sat back and waited for my pink slip. But my dismissal notice never came. Instead, the problem spotlights shifted to Tom, and within a couple months, we'd forced him out.